Hello, welcome back to History Obscura. I know I've been missing for a couple of weeks, and there are several reasons for that. Firstly, I'm just getting over my own personal bout with the plague. It took a couple of years, but I got it. Isn't that special? Um, Also, we've just up and moved back to Canada after 10 years, so there's been a lot to handle there, especially with six kitty producers to handle along the way. And we're only partially done. (laughs) We're in Ontario right now where I'm going to be here for uh, the next five weeks for archaeological field school and then we're going to be moving out west. So please wish us luck. What that means for the show right now is that I don't have a solid schedule. So what I'm going to do, especially because I want to get back into it and I have several lovely sponsors who I want to share with you. I'm going to just pop in and out of a book called London Stories, edited by Jack, no, I'm sorry, John O. London. I'll be reading and publishing as I have time, and maybe even a couple today and a couple tomorrow, depending on how much time. So don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. The first story I have is called Old Tea Drinking Days in London. Six years ago, in 1906, Mr. Richard Twining died at the age of 99. Three years later, the historic trading house of which he had long been the head kept its bicentenary. Twining's old tea house is familiar to all who haunt the Strand. Its quiet doorway opposite the law courts, with the sculptured Chinaman above it, has been as much a matter for mention by topographers as the Church of St. Clements. In his Town, published in 1848, Lee Hunt duly notices this tea house, founded about the year 1710 by Mr. Thomas Twining. His grandson, Richard Twining, who died in 1824, was a man of literary taste, and a close correspondent of his half-brother, the Reverend Thomas Twining of Colchester, who was at Cambridge with the poet Gray. Richard Twining was succeeded by his son, Richard, who died in 1857, and the third Richard Twining passed away almost 200 years after the foundation of the business. Thomas Twining of Painswick in Gloucestershire came up to London in the first years of the century before last and founded his tea business in the Strand at a time when the Maypole stood within a stone's throw of his premises. For the historic Maypole was not removed until 1717, Queen Anne was of the first of the firm's many royal customers. In 1711, a year after Thomas Twining had started his fragrant business, Her Majesty appointed him her purveyor of teas. A few years later, the Queen's drinking was so well known that Pope, referring to Hampton Court, was able to sing, Hear thou, great Anna, whom three nations obey, dost sometimes council talk and sometimes tea. 
Perhaps Pope did not foresee that a consequence of his couplet would be that generations of schoolboys would be told with very doubtful correctness that T was formerly pronounced Tay. In 1710, Tom's Coffee House brought men about town and men of letters to Devereux Court by St. Clement Danes. The Twining Establishment still has an entrance in this court, which was named after Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, the Parliamentary General. Tom's in this court was not THE Tom's that was in Covent Garden, but it was a famous resort. And at the instance of Thomas Twining, it became the original London depot for the sale of teas. The Grecian coffee house in the same court contributed to the social bustle. Addison, Steele, Goldsmith, and Sir Isaac Newton often bent their steps to Devereux Court. So early a poet as Edmund Waller sang the praises of tea, and he thought how he knew it should be brewed. A Jesuit, who had been to China, had told him that the boiling water should remain on the leaves to, quote, while you can say the miserary psalm very leisurely. As a well-deserved result, you got the spiritual part of the tea. Such tea as Kali Saber apostrophized as tea, thou soft, thou sober, sage and venerable liquid, thou female tongue, running, smile smooth thing, heart opening, wind tipping cordial. This was the beverage which Dr. Johnson drank at Mrs. Thrale's at Streatham. Singing no miserary psalm, but a blither strain. And now I pray thee, Hetty dear, that thou wilt give to me, with cream and sugar, softened well, another dish of tea. But here, alas, this mournful truth, now hear it with a frown, thou canst not make the tea so fast as I can gulp it down. We are told that on these occasions, the doctor drank as many as 25 cups of tea in rapid succession. It is better, however, to be accurate than picturesque, and it must not be supposed that the tea which Mrs. Thrale poured out for Johnson, sometimes till the early hours of the morning, bore much resemblance to the Indian teas of today. India was not then a tea garden, and the doctor drank a mild bohea. He drank it, moreover, out of cups not to be compared in size to the usual drawing-room ware of today. A Dutch tea enthusiast of the 17th century declared that 10 or 12 cups of tea after dinner would hurt nobody's digestion, and that he himself could take a hundred cups without any after-regrets. But his cups were tiny, and he made the tea only once, adding water 99 times. The doctor's performances were probably of much the same character. Meanwhile, in Red Lion Square, old Jonas Hanway, the first man to carry an umbrella in London, was writing his famous indictment of tea, which he said was sapping England's manhood and destroying the beauty of her women. He was not the first writer, by any means, to attack tea on medical, moral, and economic grounds. The association of tea with scandal began much earlier, and a print of 1710 entitled The Tea Table bore these lines. 
Here see we scandal, for our sex too base, seat its dread empire in the female race. Mongst bow and women, fans and mecklin lace, chief seat of slander, ever there we see thick scandal circulate with right bohea. In reviewing Hanway's essay, Dr. Johnson good-humoredly remarked that the author must expect little justice from one who, with tea, amuses the evening, with tea, solaces the midnight, and with tea, welcomes the morning. Even Johnson thought that tea was not a beverage for any but the leisured classes, being commonly an entertainment merely nominal, a pretense for assembling to prattle, for interrupting business or diversifying idleness. Among old London, tea drinkers' high rank must be given to the eccentric Lord Petersham, who gave his name to a great coat and a snuff mixture. But if he kept his teas, as is said, in the same room as his snuffs, one must doubt his connoisseurship. His canisters yielded kongu, pico, souchong, gunpowder, and other kinds. Shakespeare missed tea by half a century, but John Wesley loved tea drinking and gave it up under a conviction that its use by the lower classes was extravagant and harmful. It does not appear that he gave up alcohol for the same reason. It is rather startling to remember that John Keats was once on the point of becoming a tea broker. Next up, we have Oliver Cromwell's Head. Oliver Cromwell's Head has long been supposed to be in existence and to be the embalmed head now in the possession of the Reverend H.R. Wilkinson. This gentleman delivered an address on the subject at the Royal Archaeological Institute in March of 1911 when he exhibited the head to his audience. A public discussion followed, and strong opinions for and against the authenticity of the relic were delivered. Sir Henry H. Howorth and Dr. Boyd Dawkins, both eminent antiquaries, declared the skull to be indubitably Cromwell's. Describing the effect of Mr. Wilkinson's remarkable lecture, Dr. Dawkins said, It is impossible not to accept this as the real head of the great protector the man to whom England owes so much. The meeting was distinctly of this opinion, and the whole question was treated with the reverence due to the name and to the remains of one of the greatest benefactors of our country. It is to be hoped that this unique relic will ultimately find its way into the possession of the nation and be kept as a precious heirloom which cannot fail to be of the deepest historic interest to all the English people. What, then, if we should live to see the solemn reburial of Oliver Cromwell's head in Westminster Abbey? A reburial it would be. Cromwell's first burial was in the Abbey, where the site of his tomb is marked to this day by a slab on the bays of the Henry VII's Chapel. 
Here, the great protector was laid with fitting pomp, but, it is said, with little lamentation. Two vivid descriptions of the scene have come down to us. It was, says Cowley, the funeral day of the man who late made himself to be called protector. I found there had been much more cost bestowed than either the dead man or even death itself could deserve. There was a mighty train of black assistants. The hearse was magnificent, the idol crowned, and, not to mention all other ceremonies which are practiced at royal internments and therefore could be by no means admitted here, the vast multitude of spectators made up, as it used to do, no small part of the spectacle itself. But yet, I know not how, the whole was so managed that methought it somewhat represented the life of him for whom it was made. Much noise, much tumult, much expense, much magnificence, much vainglory. Briefly, a great show, and yet, after all this, but an ill sight. It was, says Evelyn, the joyfulest funeral that ever I saw, for there were none that cried but dogs, which the soldiers hooted away with a barbarous noise, drinking and talking and taking tobacco in the streets as they went. Even at this point, legend and dispute creep in, for it is said that the real internment had taken place two months before in private, and this mystery, says Dean Stanley, probably fostered the fables which, according to the fancies of the narrators, described the body as thrown into the Thames, or laid in the field of Naseby, or in the coffin of Charles I at Windsor, or in the vaults of the clay poles in the parish church at Northampton, or even carried away in the tempest the night before. A hazy 18th-century writer quotes the tradition that Cromwell's mutilated remains were obtained by some of his devoted followers and reverently buried in a field on the north side of Holborn, and that the spot was marked by the obelisk which formerly stood in the middle of Red Lion Square. No credence can be given to this story. The royalists were never in doubt that Cromwell had been laid in the abbey, and, at the restoration, they carried out a ghastly disinterment and desecration of his remains, and those of Ireton and Bradshaw. Let Anthony Wood tell the story. After the restoration of King Charles II, Ireton's body, with that of Oliver Cromwell, was taken up from their tombs in Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey on Saturday, the 26th of January, 1660, and on Monday night following were drawn in two several carts from Westminster to the Red Lion in Holborn, where they continued that evening. The next morning, the carcass of John Bradshaw, president of the High Court of Justice, which had been with great solemnity buried in St. Peter's Church at Westminster, was carried in a cart to Holborn also. And the next day following that, which was the 30th, on which day King Charles I was beheaded in 1648, they were drawn to Tyburn on three several sledges, followed by the universal outcry of the people. 
Afterwards, they being pulled out from their coffins, were hanged at several angles of that temple tree, where they hung till the sun was set. After which they were taken down, their heads cut off to be set on Westminster Hall, and their loathsome trunks thrown into a deep hole under the gallows, where they now remain. This is one of the most accepted stories, but the truth about the disposal of the body of Cromwell after his disinterment remains dark. It is not to be doubted, however, that the three heads which Londoners became accustomed to see on the roof of Westminster Hall were those of Cromwell, Ireton, and Bradshaw. A royalist writer described this exposure to the protector's skull as the becoming spectacle of his treason. There, these heads remained for a generation. Then a strange thing happened. When the great storm of 1703, of which a separate account is given in this work, was raging over London, a ghastly object fell from the roof of Westminster Hall. It was the head of Oliver Cromwell. A sentry picked it up and, carrying it home, concealed it during the rest of his life. He made a statement concerning it on his deathbed, and his friends sold the relic to a family named Russell. It is said that Sir Joshua Reynolds had a great desire to purchase the head, which was ultimately sold to James Cox, an antiquarian dealer. The sale contract, dated 1787, is now in Mr. Wilkinson's possession, and we know that Cox publicly exhibited this head in Bond Street in 1799. In the Morning Chronicle of March 18th in that year, the following extraordinary advertisement appeared. The real embalmed head of the powerful and renowned usurper Oliver Cromwell, with the original dies for the medals struck in honor of his victory at Dunbar, are now exhibited at number 5 in Mead Court, Old Bond Street, where the rattlesnake was shown last year. A genuine narrative relating to the acquisition, concealment, and preservation of these articles to be had at the place of exhibition. The head came into the possession of the Wilkinson family in 1812 under circumstances known and attested. It has passed from father to son and is now preserved by the Reverend H.R. Wilkinson at Shortlands in Kent. Thank you for listening, friends. Stay tuned from a promo from a wonderful sponsor. And as always, join us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or Patreon, or buy me a coffee. Good night. (laughs) 